fun to hear Monty mention um, Tomo Ito. I've known Tomo for a long time, when he was a student at Berkeley still, and he first started going with the RUF group at Berkeley to Yakima, and uh, just through that relationship, he went and did an internship with RUF for a few years in Atlanta at Emory University, and then here he is about to be ordained and serving in the Pacific Northwest, uh, so it's pretty cool just to see that those, those uh, sinews of connection that the Lord has throughout. Our passage this morning is going to come from the book of 1 Corinthians, which we've already read from, uh, a different portion. I'm going to be looking at chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, so hear now the word of the Lord. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God, for it's written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Greeks or to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. This is the reading of God's word. So not too long after the holidays, after my children went back to their respective homes, back to school, we decided to get our house in order, and that meant we did some cleaning up and, and, and kind of consolidating and actually getting rid of some stuff. So I made a trip to the uh, trash dump near Oregon City, and I don't, I don't know what the local one is here, but there at the one at Oregon City, it's, it's larger trash, and it's a lot of Busted up stuff, obviously, no longer usable stuff that's disposed there. I want to say, in case someone knows someone who works there, it is well run and it is efficient. But it smells, as you would expect a trash dump to smell. And there were crazy birds who just kind of swoop in and scavenge and hang about. It kind of gave it this creepy aura. And the dump is not a place where you'd want to hang out, Okay. It's not a place where you would think something significant is happening. You go there, you unload your stuff, you get out as soon as possible. Imagine us going there, you and I. We showed up and we went out and we found a bunch of the big trash that was stacked up there, the refuse. The crazy birds are still there. They're swooping, they're scavenging. But on, on one of the larger pieces of trash in particular was a person, and not someone standing there, but someone who, for some reason, was secured to a piece of trash. And, and, and maybe this was someone you knew. Maybe it was a, a, a pastor or some regionally known religious person. Maybe it was a professor of religious studies, somewhat controversial but well-known at George Fox. You fill in the picture, but tied, secured to the trash. But it wasn't just us there. There were also some state and local officials who were there. And to this person who was 
tied to the trash, secured to the trash, these officials were torturing him right in front of us. And eventually they killed him. And then imagine if I turned to you and said, this right here, right now, what's happening in front of us, this is where the living and true God is meeting us. This is where God is revealing real power and wisdom in the death of this guy. Here, God is healing the world across time, across space, across cultures. Here is life. It would seem to you, I would guess, because if you took me there and did that with me, it would seem like this to me, grotesque, absurd, foolish, probably not to be taken seriously, but to be avoided is inhuman, deluded, and crass. Full stop. But more or less, this is the scenario that we have at the cross of Jesus Christ. The historian Tom Holland in his book Dominion says this in first century Rome of in the first century world of the Roman Empire, the notion that a God would suffer torture and death on a cross was so shocking as to appear repulsive. But for us, familiarity with the biblical narrative of the crucifixion has dulled our sense of just how completely uh, novel a deity Jesus Christ is. In the ancient world, it was the role of gods who laid claim to ruling the universe to uphold its order by inflicting punishment, not to suffer it themselves. Here we go in 1 Corinthians. Paul is reminding the Corinthian church, the, the, the Christians at Corinth, of the foolishness, the absurdity, even on some level the repulsiveness of God's power and wisdom shown in the cross of Christ because they are already forgetting this. Or maybe they're not actually forgetting, but they are turning the power and wisdom of the cross into something it is not. Maybe it's opposite. And this just a few years after the actual events of Jesus' crucifixion. So how much more than for us can we tend to forget the scandal and the outrageousness of the cross? Not just in the shameful events of Jesus' crucifixion, but in how those events shape and give power to the life that we are called to live as those who are following or trying to follow Jesus and to follow Him well. So this morning we're going to briefly hear from God in this passage is my prayer, is our hope as we gather. And we're going to ask for Scripture to be a lens into our hearts and our lives as we seek to follow Christ. And we're going to do, hoping to sharpen the focus of that lens by asking a couple of questions looking at this passage. First question is this. How did the Corinthian Christians forget the scandal of the cross. How is it that they forgot the scandal of the cross? So this first letter of the church of Corinth to the church of Corinth from Paul is not like other letters that he has written, Roman like, like letters to the Roman church or to the Ephesian church, a nice mellifluous reminder of the good news, an exhortation, an encouragement. It's got that. But there's something else going on. The Corinthian church is just shoddy. 
Okay? It, it is ragged. It is messed up. It is running off of the rails. They didn't need a global pandemic to get them fussing. All of the trouble apparently came from within. Okay? So Paul is writing this letter to correct significant problems, not just in what these Christians believe, okay, their doctrine, though that's surely at play, it's always at play, but also how they are ordering their lives, their ethics, their witness is falling short of the standard of what we are called to, of what the, what the gospel calls us to. Let's just go through a, a laundry list here very briefly. The Corinthian church is plagued by, as I said, internal strife, not overt persecution or external pressures. And the result of the things that are going on, the, the tumult, the turmoil inside are, we've read a little bit about this when we read from 1 Corinthians 12, there's quarrels over who is the most principled doctrinally. Who is the most reformed? Who is the tightest? Who has it together? And we see this in chapter 3. We see this in chapter 12. Then we also see in chapters 6 and 7 issues of sexual brokenness. Folks... Uh, were having sex with one another who shouldn't be. And then on the other hand, there were folks who should be having sex together and they weren't. And Paul is leaning into both of those situations. And then they're fighting over, and I would have just loved to have been a fly on the wall, I guess we are a little bit in this, in this chapter, who is the most spiritual? Who is really filled with the Holy Ghost? Who has the best, the most evident spiritual gifts? And they were dividing up into groups, and we see that in chapters 1. And in chapters 12 and chapters 14. And then there was another group of folks who just flat out said, you know what, I'm suing you. And so in chapter 6, they were bringing lawsuits against one another within the church, Christian on Christian. And then they had this trouble with idolatry in chapters 8 and 10 and 11. And so much so, this tendency to, to, to idolatry that it was spilling over until how they related to one another in misusing the supper, the Eucharist, what we're about to celebrate here in a few minutes. And then, if you can believe it, there was contention over the resurrection of the dead. Did this really happen or not? There were some who were troubling others saying, no, it didn't happen, it doesn't matter. Chapter 15. And that's just kind of an abbreviated list. There are a few things as well, other things as well. But while each of these issues has its own specifics, it has its own relational and theological dynamics that are going on, at root, the problems that the Corinthians have get at issues of power and issues of wisdom. And that's why Paul leads off with that. More specifically, their practice of power and wisdom is shaped more by the world, shaped more by the flesh, shaped more by the power of the evil one, and not by the cross of Jesus Christ. And even worse, as all this is unfolding, most of the Corinthians that he is talking to here are claiming religious high ground. They're using the Bible. They're using their religious experience to explain themselves, to justify themselves, and to condemn others. All at the same time actually exhibiting moral and spiritual rot. Grossness. Vomit. However you want to put it. Whatever's going to make you feel icky about it. That's what, that's what we're aiming at. Let's just look at a couple of examples here. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul points out that they are bringing lawsuits against one another. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute 
between the believers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not be defrauded? Power. Power. The Corinthians are going to court with one another. The Corinthian Christians are going to court with one another as a way to express a coercive, a self-interested form of control against one another. They want to have power against one another. It's as if they're saying, look, I have a right to this, whatever it is they're suing one another about, and I'm going to get it, and I'm going to use the instrument of the law or court to get it from you, brother. All right? But for Paul, really the whole of the New Testament, power is actually shown by its effectiveness. And it's effectiveness unto something. In It's effectiveness in revealing humility, godliness, service towards others. So much so that in the case of lawsuits between these church people, Paul is saying, why don't you just eat it? Just, just eat it. Take the loss. Suffer the wrong. Because at least in that way, you aren't just angling to get your way like the world gets its way by force, coercion. But you're actually... If you eat it, just you're bearing resemblance to Christ by your actions, giving up your claims to yourself, and you're doing it for the sake of others. Why not do that? That's the Corinthians, right? It's easy to shake our fingers at the Corinthians. What about us, though? What about you? In the realm of exercising authority or control in areas where you have responsibility, is your move simply to get what you want, how you want it? when you want it, whether by raw coercion and threats, or maybe it's by clever manipulation, or even by a shading of the truth. Do you use your influence and responsibility to serve and to bless, to honor others? Or do you have simply just kind of a shined up way of being grabby and strong armed like the rest of the law, but you've got a a nice Bible verse to attach to it? See, one area this gets fleshed out in is in the arena of loving our enemies. You see, too often power, force, coercion is how we handle those we disagree with or those that we see as enemies or opponents. Let me just ask, first of all, do you define yourself? Do you have some kind of self-definition, some satisfaction by judging yourself or by establishing who your enemies are? Is that how your sense of self is even framed out? Or is it a sense of self rooted in, I'm forgiven. (laughs) I offended someone, they forgave me. In fact, it was the creator of the universe. Uh, About a week and a half ago, I was talking to a friend of mine who is actually an executive at an energy company in Texas. And he told me that one of the things he regularly prays as a Christian is to love his enemies. And I was like, wow. Who's your, you know, your enemy? I mean, that, that just seemed like such an exotic prayer. So I, I literally asked him, and I said, who's your, who's your enemy? Why does that even come to your mind just as, as an executive in a, at an energy company? He's like, the people I work with, at some point or another, I, I begin to see them as problems. They're competing against my agenda. And so for me, a lot of what praying for my enemies is, is just getting over myself, <laughs> In my own agenda first. So like, I realize I'm important. I've got responsibility and there are things going on. But I'm not always right. 
And I'm actually called to serve someone here. I'm, I'm called to serve my clients, the people I'm with, but most especially the Lord. And that actually puts into perspective how I think about other people and disagreements and conflict. And so that approach for him started to soften how he interacts and thinks about using his power as a Christian executive. Let's look at another example, wisdom. All right, in several places, Paul addresses the problem of factions and groups within the church. Factions and groups who are setting themselves above other Christians, all under the pretense that they have more spiritual insight, more wisdom, and that as a result of this insight that they claim they're free to act on those desires. In one of the cases, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5, listen to this, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? He tells them this because they're celebrating their freedom in this. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. You see, the so-called wisdom meant that, that these, these uh, Christians within Corinth felt like they were just free to do whatever they wanted with their bodies because they had been, in their minds, freed in Christ, and they were really believing it, and they were acting on their beliefs, unlike these other people who they look down upon. In another situation, there were those who separated themselves, put themselves above others, again under the pretense of being more spiritually wise, and so they put themselves above them, and they were doing it at the Lord's Supper. What does it say? They were actually getting drunk and eating all the food, overindulging in such a way that there was nothing left for the rest of the Christians who were wanting to partake. Again, an abuse of freedom created division, rooted in a wisdom, so-called, that claims Christ, but in fact is a wisdom that privileges oneself, one's needs, one's desires instead of others, serves oneself instead of others, First, it's an arrogant wisdom instead of a humble, Christ-focused wisdom. Let me just get right to the nose here. Too often in our churches, we Christians, and I'm talking about Christians, talk about freedom in a way that has the appearance of godly wisdom because freedom is a significant theme in the New Testament, but it is actually a falsehood and a false understanding of freedom parading as truth. The freedom that Christians have, which Paul addresses a good bit uh, in places like Romans and Galatians, is a freedom from sin and a freedom to serve God and others. It's not a freedom to be reckless or self-indulgent or selfishly triumphalistic, to elevate ourselves above others in a self-righteous way. One way I've, I've heard this kind of panned out over the last 20-something years of however long I've been a minister is that there is a deep and even haunting fear of losing our religious freedoms in this country, and particularly the freedoms of worship and assembly, that really we're just not anywhere close to losing. Um, I'll just give you one example. I interact regularly with university administrators as a part of my job, and on not one campus from Berkeley to Arizona, Arizona uh, Oregon State are we kept from meeting on campus and freely proclaiming the good news on campus. Not one. And the reason I bring up campus is because you might think, I don't care about that. I don't have a dog in that hunt. Actually, someone told me that that one time. I was like, well, that's very often where universities get pointed to as a place where 
we're, we're, we're having this restriction in freedoms. And I, I, I've just not seen it in the 10 years that I, I've been doing this job. And also as Christians, the freedom we carry should be known, speaking of freedom, as a freedom that is shown in great care for others, even to the point of it being an inconvenience to us, even to the point of it costing us something of our time, our treasure, our rights. And rights is not something the Bible gives a lot of attention to. We have the freedom to give up our claims in the gospel to self-promotion, to self-assertion. Put it another way, quoting Dietrich Bonhoeffer, or I think he gets at the heart of it here. If it is I who says where God will be, I will always find there a God who corresponds to me, is agreeable to me. But if it is God who says where he will be, the place is the cross of Christ. And that gets to our second question that we're looking at to examine this portion of Scripture and invite God into our hearts. The first question was, how did the Corinthians forget the scandal of the cross, its wisdom and the power? Here's the second question. Why is wisdom and power of the cross a big deal in the first place? Why is Paul basically writing a whole letter about these things? Why does Paul here and elsewhere in the New Testament refer to the cross as the form of the Christian life? as that into which we are called whenever we trust in Christ. Well, in short, the cross of Christ reveals God as God. Period. This is how we come to know, to be able to peer into who God is. The crucifixion was not a last-ditch effort of God to try and finally achieve what He couldn't by other means. It wasn't some pragmatic or calculating ploy to get us to have sympathy for Jesus and his sorry plight, to finally do the right thing out of some misplaced sense of shame. Rather, the actions of the cross reveal God himself to us. And by faith, it gives us the power to share in his life. You see, the cross does something. It is transactional. It does something for us. The cross reveals God, the God, who wins the world, not by a survival of the fittest, not by a triumph of the will, but rather one who comes in the flesh, one who comes humiliated, who doesn't come with armies, who doesn't come with a sword, who doesn't come in an overt, coercive way or with toxic divinity, but instead comes. The maker of the universe does this. He comes by being exposed, humbled, suffered in his flesh, taking on a human experience, taking on human emotions, and being, trans, uh, being pierced for our transgressions, entering into our lived experience, even the, the, the brokenness of our life, and bearing the penalty for our cosmic rebellion against God. You see, the power of weakness is God becoming human in Christ and setting aside his rights and serving and saving by his life motivated by a costly love. Here Paul in another place writes about it in Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves. This is a Christmas passage, right? We, we, we never leave Christmas. Which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not, account, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant 
being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. William Willimon is the former chaplain at Duke University. He went on to be a bishop in the Methodist Church. And he would preach regularly at the chapel at Duke University. And he, after a while, I don't know how often chapel was at Duke, but um, every couple times a week, something like that. And he regularly started to have football players from the Duke football team who were coming to chapel. But then he noticed that they had a friend who would come, but he would sit outside the chapel and he wouldn't come in. And Willimon was, being, was able to start pastoring these football players. And he kept, but he kept noticing, right, like a good pastor. He's got the 99, but he sees the one. And he's wondering, why is this guy not coming? And so he finally goes up to him and says, Hey, man, I noticed that you come and sit outside every week, but you're not coming in. Why aren't you coming in with your friends? You know, we'd, we'd love to have you. And he's like, well, I'll tell you why, pastor. I, um, I'm just not comfortable there. Uh, I know that there's a lot that's talked about in there that I just want to, don't want to agree with. I kind of want to live my life. I, I, I like doing things on the weekends and, uh, you know, I've, I've got some, there's a certain way I want to live my life and I don't need God telling me to do it and I don't want to change. And Willimon said, so you mean to tell me you're sitting on the outside, not coming in because you think that God is calling you to start doing different things, to have new loves to start ordering your life differently because it changes you? He's like, yeah, that's exactly right. He's like, that is a good reason not to come in. Because that is exactly what happens. It does when we are brought to God, when we are called into the doors here at Chehalem Valley Presbyterian, we are called into a cross-shaped experience because we are brought into vital union by the power of the Spirit with one who did exactly what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 1 and Philippians chapter 2. He was the highest, he became the lowest, so that he could come and grab us. And that is what our life will look like by faith and the power of the Spirit too. Let's pray for his help in doing that. Amen. Lord, even as we hear and experience in a very ordinary and yet mystical way right here, right now, your presence, we pray that we would not wrestle or fight or argue with you, not give qualifications of why we can and can't do something or shouldn't do something, but rather we would, as some say, surrender, as others say, confess and acknowledge that the life that you're offering for us is absurd and crazy and is foolishness as it seems and we can understand why it, it, it seems that way, is nonetheless reality. It is true. There is healing in being forgiven by you. There is healing in letting go of grudges and, and, and forgiving others. But we don't have that within ourselves. And so we pray that you would strengthen us and help us to do that. And even do that by the power of this meal in which we receive you as well. And we pray all of these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.